free speech. New Zealand's disabled community is outraged. A controversial Australian philosopher who justifies infanticide is being allowed to speak here. Cancellation. I do think that this increasing cancel culture is growing here in New Zealand. And righteous indignation. He's one of a kind when it comes to his expertise in animal rights. However, he's not an expert in the area of disability. Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan. And today on The Detail, Peter Singer, one of the world's most influential philosophers or intellectual pariah. And are we putting a stopper on not just free speech but freedom of thought. So let's recap the last couple of weeks of Peter Singer news. Peter Singer is an Australian-born philosopher. He's 72 years old, he specialises in the study of ethics, and he lectures at Princeton University in the US. For nearly five decades, Singer has contributed significantly to human thinking in a whole bunch of areas, from how best to help people in poor countries to animal testing. He's probably best known for his 1975 book Animal Liberation, which was humongously influential on the modern animal rights movement. Now, his own broad philosophy is utilitarianism. In a really basic sense, he believes humans should make choices that maximise people's happiness and minimise people's suffering. But he's also offered up some pretty divisive ideas. We decided that Yes, it was a reasonable decision for the parents and doctors to make that it was better that infants with this condition should not live, uh, at least with the more severe variants of this condition, should not live. Peter Singer is scheduled to come to New Zealand in June to speak about effective altruism, sort of a rumination on the most effective ways to benefit others. He was scheduled to speak at Sky City in Auckland, but after what it said was pushback from media and disability advocates, Sky City cancelled the appearance, citing fear of reputational damage. Singer says it's the first time he's ever been deplatformed in his 50-year career. Last week, the Trust's arena said it would allow Singer to use its Teatatu venue, saying it could be a breach of the Bill of Rights not to do so, but such deplatforming is by no means unprecedented. Massey University has cancelled the speaking invitation issued to Don Brash. Far right duo Lauren Southern and Stefan Molyneux won't be speaking in New Zealand after the venue cancelled at the 11th hour. But this is also a bit different, right? Here we have a top-level philosopher, a professor of bioethics at an Ivy League university, coming to give a talk about an utterly uncontroversial topic. I was curious what Singer's peers thought of all this farrago, so I got the University of Auckland's philosophy professor Tim Dare on the line, and I began by asking him exactly what philosophers actually do. So philosophy is essentially the application of arguments and consideration of questions, I think uh, usually where the answers can't be settled on straightforward empirical grounds. So philosophers look at questions which you can't simply go out into the world and collect facts to settle. So that means philosophers are, are in the business of putting together arguments to convince people or to consider the evidence, the reasons you can give to believe one thing rather than another about a range of topics. There was, at one point, I think, philosophy was more or less completely separated from empirical inquiry. So philosophy was purely a matter of um, reasoning without 
seeking empirical evidence. But in the last sort of 25 or, or so years, there's been a, an increasing tendency to actually try and connect philosophy back to um, empirical evidence. And Singer, to some extent, has been part of that sort of the turn to practical ethics, to actually talking about uh, not just about theories of the good in entirely conceptual terms, but to try and anchor philosophy in empirical data and evidence. Many philosophers throughout history have held controversial views and controversial personal views. Carl Schmitt and Martin Heidegger sympathised with Nazi ideology. Does holding controversial personal views or philosophical views dilute any contribution philosophers might make to broader philosophical thought? Well, it it shouldn't. So um, uh, you ought to be able to consider... Uh, people's arguments on the merit of the argument. You ought to be able to say they've given us the following premises, they've made the following connection between these claims, um, they've given these arguments in support of those claims, how do they stand up? And the fact there's some other fact about them might lead you to interpret some of their claims one way rather than another, but essentially you ought to be able to separate the person from the argument. So more, more generally... It's seen as a fallacy to argue on ad hominem basis, that is to to say the person putting that argument is someone we disapprove of, therefore the argument is bad. Um, that doesn't necessarily follow, um, and not just with philosophers like Heidegger and co, but 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 just in everyday um, argumentation, we, we may think ill of some individual, but if they can present an argument for some cause you, or, or some position, you ought to be able to evaluate their argument without regard to facts about them. Singer, 30 years ago or so, had a a significant hand in developing or or leading this turn to practical ethics. So the application of philosophical analysis to to genuine practical topics, so animal liberation, poverty, and so on. So in one sense in which he's been tremendously influential is that he he is probably um, properly credited with being one of the um, developers of a of a field which is now um, a very significant part of philosophical inquiry and um, his arguments though they're often on on all of those topics though they're often controversial are always clear and compelling and so um, he has especially in areas like animal ethics. I think he's really set the debate on a certain line, and even those who disagree with him um, have had to engage with his arguments. So I think he's both influential in the sense that he, he really has made a genuine difference. I suspect Singer's you know, produced more vegetarians than, than any other philosopher, but he's also been tremendously influenced on the discipline itself because philosophers are now just taken for granted that when they're writing about ethics, they might be writing about practical, actual day-to-day topics, not just theoretical issues about how should we understand the good and so on. Um, so, so that's why he's, without question, one of the most influential philosophers um, around. Yeah, sort of like the idea that uncomfortable questions make us think about those questions and approach them in a different way, which almost by definition expands the, the, the canon of human critical thought. Well, so one of, you know, one of the, the sort of classic moves in, in free speech, and it's a sort of very liberal notion, is that speech is almost always a good thing. Um, if it's true, then it allows us to see things which are true. 
if it's false, then um, it allows us to respond to it and develop our positions, and so it makes sure that we don't hold positions, as, as Mill puts it, as dead dogma, that we just believe things without ever actually thinking about what the arguments are um, for it. And so on Mill's account, at least, your speech is always valuable, whether it's true or false, because it either expands the things we know because it's true, or it um, ensures that false beliefs are exposed as false and allows us to develop better positions, better versions of the true beliefs. Now, I actually think Mill goes a bit overboard on this. I think there are some truths we probably don't need to test. There are some things we can reasonably take to be settled. And I think probably Mill would agree there is some speech which is just straightforwardly harmful um, and which doesn't generate very much value. Um, but nonetheless, that's a sort of starting position that speech is, is good because it tells us things which are true or it allows us to, to identify false beliefs and, and strengthen our true positions. Part of the issue here is how Singer's views are characterised. Controversial Australian philosopher who justifies infanticide that's not really true. Here is what Singer actually says. Well, of course, there are many factors, and it would depend. I mean, it's not simply that, you know, of any disability that this is true, but there might be some um, of whom I think you clearly could say a, ch a child who has a condition, for example, called epidermolysis bullosa, which is one where the skin keeps breaking and it's impossible really to to stop the skin breaking and, and wounds developing and infections developing. And if you try and bandage it and then you change the bandages, you just pull off more skin. Um, and in very severe cases, that's a life of misery and suffering and the child will die um, predictably within months or a couple of years. So I think it is possible to say um, objectively really that that is not a good life, that it's better if that child were never born or if they are born that they die swiftly and humanely rather than they, we try to prolong their life as long as we can. Singer is putting forward a philosophical argument and it's important to note that according to his philosophy, humans aren't special. He considers us animals, just like any other sentient being. He's also looking for consistency and if you believe, as he does, that we should make decisions to limit suffering, he's saying perhaps this is an idea which can be applied universally. It might be a bad idea, but if it is a bad idea, why? Answering that question is the journey and the destination. This might all seem a bit semantic, but it's important. Putting forward a philosophical theory, however questionable it might be, is not the same as defending someone who has committed infanticide. Graham Hill is a journalist and broadcaster who's twice interviewed Singer. Graham has an exclusive interview with him coming out in the New Zealand Herald in May. And a couple of weeks ago, he wrote a piece for the Herald's Canvas magazine advocating strongly in Singer's favour. Uh, his ethics as his specialist subject, he thinks about hard questions about ethics. His biggest conclusions are about suffering of sentient beings. Uh, and how we can stop that as much as possible, because we can, because we should. I found him a little bit, frankly, I'll be honest, a little bit dull, a little bit Spock-like. Um, but we kind of need Spocks, need Spocky people. We need to listen to them. We can get carried away with uh, visceral, gut-like reactions to our diminishment. We can make bad decisions. Yuck isn't a good thing to make a decision on, and especially an important one. Otherwise, no one would give birth. Uh, no one would have an appendectomy. 
And he addresses these things, and I'm kind of interested in them too. It's I've always been interested in those philosophical dilemmas. I was pretty fresh to the arguments that he'd made, and they are primarily thought experiments about sentience and suffering. I don't necessarily agree with them, but then again, I don't think people realise that he doesn't go as far as people think he goes. Well, let's cut to the chase about the, the icky bit. Sure. Parents of severely disabled newborns should have the right to euthanise that child. That sounds awful, doesn't it? Yeah. Parents of severely disabled newborns, he's talking about sentience, and he's not saying they should. He's not making a decision. I asked him, okay, so how disabled, Peter? And he said, I don't try to define severely disabled because the decision as to whether it's better for or not for an infant to live or die should be made by the parents in consultation with doctors and with the knowledge of life with a child in that condition. Um, That's where people's backs get up, that, oh, they just don't want to have the bother of having to care for that child. I think it's... It should be known that these decisions are made every day. He's not saying how disabled, but there are horrific levels of disability that children are born with that we don't like to think about, but these decisions are made every day and they are made in consultation with doctors and their parents. Whether someone just can't be asked, I think is taking a bit of a a, a long bow to that argument. Disabled people are often talked about and historically have often been talked about and there is a history of not involving them in conversations about this. I mean you can understand why a person with spina bifida who is 40 years old would interpret Singer's comments as bigotry. Bigotry? It doesn't strike me as bigotry. I think it is that ick thing that our parents may have the right in consultation with doctors to euthanise a child. Because of a disability. Peter, what level? He says, dunno. I'm not going to say it. Um, Yeah, I understand if people interpret it as somehow devaluing the existence of disabled people. Uh, Well, I could could understand why you're um, maybe upset. But the thing is, you know, I think people these days... Do. I, I, I know disabled people and I know great value that they've given my life. You do too. I think everyone might know somebody with a level of disability um, who've enriched our lives. And you don't, you, you imagine, oh, Peter Singer would have killed you. Um, well, hang on. Well, yeah, I, I, I don't think so. But my main gripe in the article was the extra extent I went to. Um, I don't think it's a wonderful thing to rejoice that he got cancelled. Mm. And that's sort of part of this wider issue of cancel culture. Mm. And you, you address this again in your piece. You, you outline your suspicions that we may be nearing a McCarthy moment in this area. W- what do you mean by that? It was a witch hunt uh-huh. about communists. There was a huge fear. It was stirred up about communists in the 1950s in America. Senator Joseph McCarthy started it in a speech where he named names in Wheeling, West Virginia. Uh, Who are the communists? They're in our government. And this created a huge stir. It soon 
became an opportunity for people to easily defame somebody else they wanted to get rid of. Rat each other out, yeah. Yeah, rat each other out. Um, it was awful. And it came to what I rate as the greatest bit of television I've ever seen. And it was live when Joseph Welch was a lawyer for one of the accused and McCarthy was going at the guy and going at the guy and going at the guy and have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? And, and Joseph Welch found an extra spine and stood up to McCarthy. Let us not assassinate this lad further, Senator. Look, look, you've done enough. Have you no sense of decency, sir? At long last, have you left no sense of decency? Yeah, I think the rejoicing in finding pretty much anything that may be interpreted correctly or incorrectly as something which doesn't fit the polite society narrative. And they can be held down, lose their jobs, exempt from society from that point forward. I suspect there might be a McCarthy moment coming because otherwise we end up in uh, a perpetual denunciation culture. People will scream at this uh, comparison, but there's an element of it that I think is bang on. Um, the book by Young Chang, Wild Swans, talking about the... Mao's reign, um, Mao's China, and the Cultural Revolution. And there were compulsory denunciations and public, verbal, psychological floggings of people. And I think it behoves us to recognise when that sort of thing is happening and to pull back and have a good think about it. Do you really think that that's happening? It's, it's happening with new te technology. Yeah, yeah. see, this is, yeah. this is what I was going to ask. Is it's that... not in the public square like it was with Mao. And I'm not making a comparison. Mao killed millions of people through uh, neglect, hubris and horror and a dogma. I'm not talking about that at all. It's just this... Oh, it, it really is dystopian. It's like a Star Trek episode, isn't it? With, you know, the, the, this, the denunciation um, feels good to be on one side. But be careful, tables can turn. So we should be careful of these denunciations when they... Careful of them when they happen to anyone. There's such a massive thing in this, though, which is social media, Twitter and Facebook, which acts as a massive amplification tool. Yeah, it is. A lot of people's existence, their worth, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing, is actually online. It is a world, and people can be wrecked online... Um, yeah, reasonably easy with a, with a big crowd um, piling in because yes, there is an anonymity to it, and you hear the the volume of the crowd, and uh, there is a capitulation. There are people are frightened, and so it takes a lot of courage to speak up for somebody who is being denounced for fear of being denounced yourself, even if it's from. I think the honourable position we should have learnt and never forget of the likes of Voltaire, John Stuart Mill, you know, the famous quote, I think it's Voltaire, um, I may disagree with your opinion, but I shall fight to the death for your right to say it. Mm. Um, I don't think we should forget that. I think it's a really good thing to remember because... While you're in kind of a comfy position that you feel, oh, right, the opinion is all on my side. We are right. 
it's easier to be caught up in it. And Bertrand Russell always rings in my ears. One ought to always entertain one's opinion with an element of doubt. As of today, Peter Singer's talk seems to have the green light, but a lot can happen in the interceding three months. And Tim Deere has a word of advice for the venue should public pressure rise up again. I do think it's important that whoever were to host something like this, there's no reason for them to disregard these concerns. So it's not, I think, that whoever ends up hosting this should say, look, we just don't care about the concerns of disability advocates. Their concerns are are genuine and important, and so whoever's managing this event, um, and, and that includes Singer, so whoever's involved in it, ought to respect those views and engage with them. Now, whether that means consulting, um, I'm not quite sure, but I think there ought to be engagement. We ought to make sure that they have an opportunity to make their views known. And so I don't, don't want to get to the point where you just say, well, you know, free speech is so important, we should just ignore these groups. Um, I think there should be engagement and opportunity for them to be respected. However, the, the, so, so going back to the cancelling, though, I think there, there is a, a worry... Um, in this case, it looks slightly curious. It's not very clear to me that um, at least all of the objectors were saying the Sky City mustn't go ahead. At least some people seem to have been surprised that they cancelled. Um, they said, we thought the talk would go ahead and we thought we would protest. And Sky City didn't want, as far as I can see, to be associated with that. I think Sky City should have just been prepared to wear that, that they put this event on um, and they manage the protesters respectfully. That's what you have to do in order to have these sorts of events go ahead. That's the detail for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. Hit the subscribe button to stay across the detail every day. And if you're on Apple, please leave us a rating as it helps other listeners find us. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Professor Tim Deere and Graham Hill. Ka kite anō. Mm-hmm.